All right, all right. Welcome to the Cava Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. The Cava Ships podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the largest producer of undersea unmanned vehicles, making transoceanic missions possible. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Coming up, the Navy's investigation report into the command climate and quality of life aboard the aircraft carrier George Washington, prompted by a spate of suicides among the ship's junior sailors, was made public this week, and the story is not pretty. Sam Lagrone of USNI News will join us again to talk through the report and the issues that sooner or later affect every ship in the Navy. But first, a look at this week's Naval News. The Iranian Navy light frigate Dina and base ship Makran returned to Bandar Abbas, Iran, on May 20th, completing an eastward, round-the-world cruise that began last September. It was a notable achievement for Iran's small Navy, not designed to operate far from home, but nevertheless has been demonstrating a capability to cruise beyond the Persian Gulf region. The ships passed through the Strait of Magellan at the southern tip of South America in early January, called it Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and Cape Town, South Africa. Iran said, after the ships returned, that a goal of the cruise was to see how the Dina, built in Iran, performed in Antarctic waters, even though the passage at South America's tip took place in the middle of the Southern Hemisphere's summer. The watch officer of Norwegian frigate Helga Ingstad in an unusual civil trial received a 60-day suspended jail sentence for negligence in the November 2018 collision resulting in the ship's loss. The Norwegian Navy is unhappy with the decision to try the case in a civil court, a rarity among nations and only a recent procedural change in Norway. The watch officer was a junior member of the ship's wardroom, and while several officers were initially charged, he was the only officer actually put on trial. Norwegian Chief of Navy Admiral Rune Andersen expressed deep dissatisfaction with the trial and the outcome and questioned whether the Navy would be so cooperative in the future. Quote, when the trial is over, Anderson said, we have to ask ourselves whether in the future we can be so open and self-examining if it ends with punishment. There were a number of U.S. Navy news ship developments over the past week. The Jack H. Lucas DDG-125, the first Arleigh Burke-class Flight 3 destroyer, successfully completed acceptance trials May 18th, Naval Sea Systems Command announced. Formal delivery and acceptance by the Navy comes next. The ship was built at Ingalls Shipbuilding in Mississippi. And a keel ceremony was held May 16th for the new destroyer Lewis H. Wilson Jr., DDG-126, at General Dynamics Bath Iron Works in Maine. The ship, the first Flight 3 destroyer to be built at Bath, honors the former Marine Corps Commandant who was awarded the Medal of Honor in World War II for his actions on Guam in July 1944. A $526 million contract for the yet-to-be-named FFG-65, the fourth Constellation-class frigate, was awarded May 18th to Fink and Terry Marinette Marine in Wisconsin, builder of the new ships. Also on May 18th, the Navy announced that Austal USA had won a two-shipyard competition to build up to seven new ocean surveillance ships for the U.S. Navy. The ships are key to persistent underwater surveillance and all five ships now in service routinely operate forward deployed outside of the United States. 
The initial $114 million contract is for Austell to provide a detailed design for the new ships. If all options are exercised, the contract is worth up to $3.2 billion for the Alabama shipyard. Austell reportedly won over a competing bid from Bollinger Shipyards. And the littoral combat ship Canberra, also built by Austell, will be commissioned July 22nd in Sydney, Australia, the U.S. Navy announced May 18th. The ship bears the Australian capital's name, but is the second U.S. Navy ship honoring heavy cruiser HMAS Canberra, sunk in 1942, fighting alongside U.S. Navy ships. Canberra was delivered in December 2021, but has officially been in an in-service status since then. And that's a look at just some of this week's Naval News. All right, let's move to the discussion portion of the show. We are happy to be joined by friend of the pod and return guest, Sam Legrone from USNI News. Um, Sam, this week, uh, you and your team dove into a report that the Navy released on really well-documented and uh, well-publicized problems on board the carrier USS George Washington when it was in the Newport News shipyard. This is a a report that had been anticipated and um, had received, as I said, lots of attention both on the Hill uh, and from media like you. Um, What what are your thoughts? What were your key takeaways from the report? And then we can get into some specifics. Sure. Uh, Thanks again for having me um, back on the show. So the bulk of the report was about the midlife upgrade of USS George Washington. It's a Nimitz-class nuclear carrier. And at the half-life of every single Nimitz-class carrier, you got to take it into one place, and that's the Newport News shipbuilding. It's uh, HII's yard uh, just across the James River from the Naval Station in Norfolk. And so this period lasts for about four years, um, cost about 4 to $5 billion, and you essentially do a bulkhead uh tear down or tear down to the bulkheads plus uh refuel the two reactors for another 25 year service life so it's the it's the biggest single modernization um pretty much anywhere in the navy and every nimitz carrier goes through it and the george washington is the sixth one uh to go through this process it started in uh 2001 with uss nimitz so uh this process uh for years and years and years has been known to universally be tough on sailors. So you have the bulk of the ship's company that are still assigned to the aircraft carrier. Um, and they li- they move off the ship. They live on the ship um, later on in the period, but it's, it's, it's silly putting your bed down next to an industrial area. Um, so imagine trying to sleep inside a machine shop or where there's welding going on or, uh sandblasting or you know pick pick your loud uh interruption so it's always been really tough on the sailors and uh the Newport News shipyard just by the way it's built uh and where it's located in the ha- larger Hampton Roads area makes it difficult to get to from the naval station where a, a lot of the sailors have um either uh you know sort of where they live um so it's already set to be a really difficult iteration, and, and especially there's uh, the way that the U.S. Uh, military deals with junior sailors in in particular. They don't have a base housing allowance or any other kind of uh, housing support because they're supposed to ostensibly live on the ship. And so that's a waiver that they get from the DOD. So this is this is how bad it is already. 
before you get into this for especially younger sailors. George Washington is a unique case because instead of four years, uh, this RCOH or this this multi-year uh, refueling um, extended to almost six years long. Uh, and so you had uh, three generations of junior sailors uh, that just sat in the shipyard with sometimes not a lot to do. It's not a pleasant place to be, and there's no real place to hang out. Uh, long waits uh, to get there. There was an instance in the report where they talked about a sailor having to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to get to a parking lot, uh, to take a shuttle bus, to the shuttle bus drop off, and then another 12-minute walk into the yard to make it for a 7 a.m. muster. So that's like a three-hour commute uh, early on. So there, there's there's all of these um, sort of things that, that make it really unpleasant. Where the Navy started paying attention was back in April, uh, there were three uh, unrelated suicides. The Navy, uh, in a separate investigation, said that they were unrelated. But um, as, as you gentlemen know, that when you have sort of uh, multiple suicides in inside one command, that's usually a sign of of some systemic failures, even if they're unrelated in terms of uh, the cause. If you start to see that pattern, um, something is very, very wrong. And based on that and, and press reporting too, uh, I think the military.com, uh, Constantine uh, Torapin was one of the first folks to kind of really um, kind of dig into that. And so um, over since 2017, uh, it was kind of revealed as part of these investigations, there were nine suicides for GW sailors while the ship was in the yard at Newport News, including uh, a sailor who was uh, a master's of arms recruit who was on force protection detail and um, took his own life with his uh, service issued sidearm on board the ship. So just, just end after end after end after end of just sort of just kind of unfortunate circumstances that um, snowballed into the situation that made it difficult for the Navy to ignore. Where does the Navy go from here? Do you, in your view, um, is this an isolated case to, I mean, you, you know, Admiral Cottle, who did the uh, the call with Admiral Cottle of Fleet Forces, who did the call with reporters this week that you guys covered in your article. I mean, he, he really zeroed in on this two-year extension of the maintenance period as being, you know, an added stressor to an already stressful time, as, as you mentioned. Um, I mean, does is it your sense that the Navy has its arm or arms around future RCOHs that um, this type of stuff won't happen? Or is there more that needs to be done in your view? So I think um, Admiral Cottle, to his credit, was pretty aggressive uh, coming out of sort of these are the things that we want to get done. And so in the report, he issued 48 recommendations, including uh, stuff they can get after right now, like improving the parking and improving the housing situation. Um, and, uh, there's other things they need to do that they might need some more permission for, uh, in terms of allowing, uh, the sailors to live off base, but it comes down to a larger question of how many sailors do you actually need assigned to the aircraft carrier when it's in this midlife refueling and overhaul? Uh, and that's kind of an open question. Um, how many, uh, how much more beyond the reactor department do you need there? Uh, how much do you need uh, force protection and armed sailors and already probably maybe one of the most secure facilities on the planet? Um, 
So I, I, I think if they, it's like anything else, uh, Chris, and, and you know that because you were uh, pretty involved with the, uh, uh, the Fitz and McCain stuff, but you start to see, you know, uh, it's a, it, it's, this is a different story, but it rhymes with a lot of um, instances that the Navy's had in its past uh, pretty much since the beginning where it, it, it really takes um, uh I don't know a better way to say it, like sailors dying for real change to happen. Um, and that's something that it, it, it's the recommendations are good. Um, recognizing that, uh, you know, people just accepting um, what the, the the term the service uses is uh, normalized deviation. So it's like your side view mirror on your car doesn't work on the left side. So you just don't parallel park on the left side anymore. You just park on the right. Well, you know, 50% of your, that that's the example of, of normalizing deviation. So recognizing that they need a reset is great. How they are going to go and fund it is uh, sort of the next question. And so they're, they weren't really clear on the specifics of what they need from the 25 budget uh, and what they've um, already asked for in the 24 budget. I want to ask one one more, and then uh, I'll, I'll let Chris go. Where where does toughness and resilience fall into this? Right in your article, you have a a picture of uh, the uh, prior MCPON, uh, uh Master Chief Rush Smith, Master Chief Petty Officer Navy Rush Smith. Uh, Russ got himself into some trouble um, or some controversy about a year ago when essentially he kind of ask the sailors to get tough, right? To recognize that this is a hard job and that they really needed to lean into this, that it was kind of a, almost a, a toughness or a resilience. Uh, there was a toughness or resilience piece missing to how they were uh, going about their day-to-day -day, um, life in the RCOH. What's your sense of institutional issues versus generational issues? I I, I don't want us to this to turn into a you know a, a chaise lounge session, but I, I mean th there is a resilience piece that that is that older folks, retired graybeard guys like me, kind of think about and wonder. I, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Um, from the sailors that you know reached out to us and that that we've spoken to, uh, I don't think. I don't think this generation in particular is not interested in working hard. Uh, I don't think this generation in particular is is uh, shy about going through adversity. But I, I think in this particular instance, when you start going through the report and seeing how um, pretty miserable uh these these instances were and how the majority of the crew didn't trust the resources that they had for mental health or to deal with a stressful situation um i i, I think the the one story that stands out is andrew mitchell sandor or i'm sorry Xavier mitchell sandor uh who was the masters of armor recruit um who took his uh life aboard the carrier with his service issued sidearm um it was too loud for him to sleep in his rack so he slept in his truck um there wasn't anything for him to do in the region so he on the weekends he drove up to connecticut to 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 visit his parents because that was the only other place he could really go uh and it was a life of loneliness and isolation 
for the sailors who were on the ship that was really beyond uh, anything that anyone signed up for. And I think if you look at the report, they talked about the amount of waivers that they needed from the DOD in order to have the sailors reside in, in the situations uh, that they were in. Um, there's there's one thing, you know, there's being tough and resilient when you need to be, but then I think the question that this report asks and Admiral Cottle and Mick Ponhanea are asking is, well, yes, you need to be tough and resilient. However, how do you spend that currency and is it worth it to, to do it when there isn't any kind of obvious benefit? Sam Cavus here. So, you know, you and I have talked this issue over quite a number of times. Um, and, you know, I, I, this is, I think, you know, the, the whole issue of suicide is one that is incredibly difficult to address. Um, this report that just came out this week is not the suicide report. This is the quality of life command climate report on the GW and in general ships and, and, and overhauls. Uh, but it is absolutely, it's, it's quite specific. It was prompted in response to the suicides that uh, came about in April of 2022. So without those suicides, this report wouldn't have happened. The report documents an awful lot of aspects of overhaul life that are familiar to just about anybody who's been in the Navy or around the Navy. Um, on the other hand, a lot of this stuff is also, you know, you, you shake your head at, you know, okay, it's time to fix this stuff. Um, it's, it's, it's one thing to have these problems. It's one thing for these problems to evolve. It's another thing to, for nobody to really do anything about it. Um, and I think we're seeing a lot of that in, in how these quite detailed findings are put out that, you know, this is, this has just been getting worse and worse and worse for years and years and years. Um, it's exacerbated in this sense because number one, we have this is these are the aircraft carriers are by far the biggest ships in the Navy, overwhelmingly. Um, even in overhaul, there's um, uh, was, was around it's, it's around two thousand um, sailors are still assigned to the ship, even though they're not operating, they're not going anywhere for years. Um, there's a lot of work for them to do. It's not what they signed up for, and that's that's one of the one of the general bitches, you know, about about every sailor in overhaul is that. Did you sign up to the Navy to work in a shipyard? No. Um, people sign up for all kinds of reasons. I, there, there is there is one finding in here that says you know sailors deserve to go to sea. And you know we've all known people who who managed to you know serve on two, three, sometimes even four ships, and never go to sea. It just worked out that way for whatever reason. I and mean, one guy, you know, he got a. He was on a PCU of a ship building, and before it was commissioned, he transferred off, and he went to a ship that was decommissioning, took it apart, and then he wound up with another, another yard, another ship that was just um, in the shipyard the whole time. These are these are tough questions. Uh, then it's not new that the, the navies have been aware of this for years. They they try to, for example, to have ships do major shipyard periods in their home port, so the families don't get um, disrupted. That was a major effort the Navy started to do um, last 12, 15 years ago. Um, it's not always possible. The carriers, as you said, there's no other place to do this. There's the only one, one, one place that builds the ships, there's only one place that rebuilds the ships. 
And right now that, that, that yard in Newport News, there are more carriers in that yard. Actually last winter when the uh, Gerald Ford was, was back in, um, almost a historic you know, post-World War II level for the number of ships in that shipyard. Uh, they're, and, and they're not designed to it, they're designed for it. Um, this is tough stuff all around. Uh, as you know, you, you, um, you're one of several news outlets that got an embargoed copy of the report. Um, you were able to read through it uh, and had, you had time to read through it. Um, you, you've been, been briefed by Admiral Caudle. Um, what really strikes you in this report? I mean, this is, you've, you've been covering this, this, this issue for a long time. You got the report, it's pretty extensive, it's pretty scathing, um, it doesn't make excuses. What, and I'm, it almost sounds like I'm trying to make excuses for the Navy, which I'm not, but what, what, what really struck you in this report? I think the one thing, there's, there's two things that I'm still kind of thinking about on this. Uh, one of them is um, kind of the accommodations for, for sailors. Um, I think the one uh, anecdote that kind of sticks out is that um, the, the the BAH not having BAH for junior sailors and giving them options to live somewhere else was was really right. tough. And the fact ba that basic allowance for housing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, uh, giving giving subsidies for housing for some of these junior sailors because again, you know, you know, we're looking at uh, kids that are 18, 19 years old, and they're and they're living on the ship. Uh, and they should probably maybe live somewhere else because, you know, you're right out of high school and this is kind of the world that you kind of walk into, which is, you know, kind of, kind of unpleasant. Um, and then I think the other thing is, is the conversation about this needs to be put in the context of sort of the national suicide problem and the national, I mean, young kids are dying at a higher rate than they ever have. And it's, it's really sad just nationally. So if you, uh, there was a great story in the Wall Street Journal that's based on a Journal of American uh, uh, Medical Association paper that came out in March uh, about, you know, young kids, um, you know, dying from um, firearms, uh, either self-harm or getting shot, and then um, by drug overdoses. And, and that's reflected inside the Navy too. And so like we had you know, one of the questions that we had is it's very difficult to talk about firearms uh, in the military context. Um, and uh, the without it becoming a third rail and everybody going shields up and going into their partisan corners. So, for example, the RAND study on self-harm um, is is that came out on um the independent investigation panel that looked at sort of uh, suicide in, in the military had a suggestion like, hey, maybe um, you raise the age limit to buy a firearm at the exchange on base, which you can do from 18 to 25. That would probably do a lot to, to, to um, help reduce um, sailors and Marines and soldiers and airmen uh, choosing to die by suicide. And, uh, everyone lost their minds. You couldn't have a conversation about it because everybody went to their partisan corners and you couldn't talk about how access to firearms as a self-harm uh, was a harm reduction idea. It was just, you know, Second Amendment this uh, versus no one needs to have guns this. And and it was a bunch of static and the status quo didn't change. Um, 
we asked uh, questions about, you know, they, in the last 18 months, there were two sailors on duty at Newport News uh, Shipyard who chose to uh, die by suicide with their service-issued sidearm. Um, we had some questions about that, and there wasn't really great answers. Um, apparently, there's a Pentagon-wide study on this uh, that the Navy's participating in, but we didn't get any much more answers than that. So those are those are the two things that I really kind of want to that, that sort of stood out was that access to housing for the junior sailors, and then you know maybe a recognition that this is part of a larger issue in in the U.S. that um, that the this this generation is is dying at a higher rate um from all sorts of different reasons um than than the generation before it and that's you know that's that's a real tough pill to swallow um that that it's it's more dangerous to be a young person in the united states now than it was when when you know 20 years ago when i was 18. right well you know just to try to put a little perspective on it as well major national problem major problem within the pentagon um, there's been an awful lot of attention on this in recent years. Um, the Pentagon itself just issued its last full report on uh, suicide last October. Um, one of the things that struck me in that, and of course this is October 2022, and they're, the last year they have full statistics for is 2021. Um, but just sort of, you know, the, the firearm thing, there was a brief passage in, in that report in 2020, 202 military dependents died by suicide, including 133 spouses and 69 other dependents. Personal firearms were the primary method of suicide deaths among suicide and members and family members, according to the Pentagon report. Um, it, it, is, it is truly a vexing uh, issue. Uh, I will note that you know this ship. Um, for a lot of reasons, this 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 was by far the longest uh, RICO overhaul, as you said at the beginning. Um, it's gone on for six years plus. Uh, as we speak, the ship is preparing to go out on uh, on sea trials. They're 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 actually going to get away from the yard, but that uh, they were built in, and go back to the naval base um, pretty soon, within within days. They're going to go out on sea trials. Um, I'm pretty sure when that's over, they'll relocate back to Norfolk Naval Base. It is, it, you know, parking. You know, there's, there's this long thing in here about about the parking uh, nightmares and traffic nightmares in Newport News. And I don't know what you can do about it other than build an enormous parking garage at the shipyard in Newport News. Newport News is this is not a garden spot of the world. It's not a big town. It's not. It's not. Doesn't have a lot of facilities. Not not much to do. There's much more to do in Norfolk. The Navy's put in you know, a lot of effort into building facilities for sailors at Norfolk, Norfolk Naval Base across the, the Norfolk Naval Station, across Hampton Roads. As everybody in Norfolk knows, it's pretty tough to get back and forth uh, reliably um, through, through the, um, the harbor tunnel. Um, traffic is often a mess. Um, and there's, you know, that's, that, that's geography. If you built it, I, I, could, I can see now, if you built a great big, huge parking garage with 6,000 capacity uh, parking spaces at Newport News, then people would complain that they're now they're trapped on the Newport News and they, and they can't go over to the other side. It's just, you know, there's some of these problems don't have good solutions. That's relatively easy parking compared to please don't kill yourself. 
Um, I don't know where we're going to go with this, um, but but certainly the, the suicides have uh, brought great attention on the whole issue of, of supporting sailors in every way during these overhauls. And uh, it's not not always a matter of suck it up. I, I, I fully admit that I'm I'm an older, old, older, older guy, and I, I tend to you know go go lean to this. Yeah, suck it up side uh, fairly. But on the other hand, there's a lot, lot, lot more that can be done. And um, I hope this I hope more is done. I want to just ask one, one more uh, question, um, because I think this has been a great discussion. You, er, early on, Sam, you mentioned Fitz and McCain, and I, I think that that's a great uh, analogy because, um, you know, when you looked at after the Fitzgerald and McCain collisions, it was very easy to kind of look at all of the different layers uh, in the safety world. They kind of they call it the Swiss cheese model, right? A little hole here, a little hole there, and kind of miss the totality of the holes um, because you're going after one issue at a time. Is this a, a one-off because an aircraft carrier, um, you know, was in the yard for two additional years and had lots of stresses? Or is this a canary in a coal mine as, you know, the Navy gets busier, ships get older? Um, I think that's the that's the issue that the Navy is going to have to wrestle with. And those of us that cover the Navy are going to have to wrestle with. I mean, it's it's very easy to criticize the Navy or criticize the generation or pick an issue. But I, I'm just really worried at the the number of things that are stacked on top of each other. And I don't see any of them getting better over time. Uh, I've been playing around with this analogy. Um, so how can you how can you simply um, describe what's going on with the Navy and this is the best one I've got. So I'll, I'll try it out for the first time live on this podcast is uh, um, if you were to think about the roles and responsibilities of the Navy as a bagel, bagel's too big. And if you were to think about the resources as cream cheese, not enough cream cheese. Um, I, I think when you look at instances like Fitz and McCain and um, what's going on with George Washington and pretty much... Um, a lot of the stressors in terms of manning and recruiting and all of that stuff, uh, the what you're looking at is an under-resourced force because uh, to the Navy's credit, and I will, I will give the Navy a lot of credit here, they're able to make a system, an inefficient system or an under-resourced system work as well as they can because of the resiliency of sailors. I mean, you can, because that is, that is the attitude that um they can do it and they can make it they can make it happen and they can they can solve problems um you saw that a lot uh coming out of uh seventh fleet with with Fitz and McCain a, a story we know very very well you had a ship that wasn't probably ready to deploy in Fitzgerald that was out of the yards for about a month with a crew that wasn't particularly seasoned um but the destroyer that was scheduled to do a freedom of navigation operation in the South China Sea had a busted BLS door, so they had to throw in somebody. And uh, it made it really tough to say no, that we're not ready to go and do this. We can do it. Um, so I think what it comes down to is at some point, there needs to be a larger conversation about what exactly you need the Navy's strategic priorities to be. And you need to be able to figure out how to live within the resources that you fund them to. If you want them to do more, you need to give them more resources and also manage them better. I mean, I think there's a couple of places in this report where 
uh, if you look at some levels of efficiency, you know, I think, you know, for example, there's a really comp, the Huntington Hall, which is the place where the sailors live when they're living in Newport News is like leased from Newport News to a separate entity that in turn subleases stuff. But what it ends up happening is a, a two person stateroom uh, in the in that building um, that's it's probably what 164 square feet, something like that, 84 square feet to individual sailor, uh, is charged to the Navy at $2,400. Uh, the Newport news happens to be the most affordable place to city in Virginia, uh, to rent an apartment. And for 1500 bucks, you can get 10 times that space. So, I mean, and, and I don't think anybody's intentionally trying to like bilk the Navy for rental fees. It's just one of those, you know, perpetual motion machines. Well, we're doing it like this and then we'll do this rental and then we'll do this. And I think everyone here has the absolute best of intentions, but you're dealing with um, under-resourced activities and um, they're under-resourced and they're also not managed all that well. So, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, again, maybe I'm oversimplifying it here, but you need to like, not prepare your system to be operated by the top operators uh, or the the most capable human beings. You need to be able to have this system work with median performers. And I think that's that's what's kind of missing here is that you have these extraordinary efforts to sustain a system that isn't super well resourced. And the Navy has gotten by for about the last 20 years, as well as it can. Um, and I'm and it should be impressive to 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 the taxpayer that this under-resourced system is able to operate as well as it does. And a lot of that is the strength of the personnel. Um, but I think sometimes the personnel side doesn't get as much attention as admitted to by um uh Admiral Meyer, who is the commander of uh surface force, uh, not surface force, I'm sorry, uh naval. Um, Airland, um, uh, Naval Air Forces Atlantic, who wrote in his endorsement, um, which which is probably the most, probably maybe one of the most poignant piece of um, command investigation writing I've ever seen was Admiral Meyer's um, endorsement of this because it's 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 very sympathetic to to the sailors. He went and did the whole parking rigmarole. He walked to the yard, um, and was like, no we spend all this time thinking about the material um, solutions for this, right? You can't have a Navy without ships, but we don't spend enough time thinking about the personnel. And that was, that was one of the things that, that he said. And it's, and it's really easy to go and um, stick the junior sailors with a lot of these, um, you know, unpleasant parts of the service because there's not really a ton they could do with it. And that was, that was his point um, in there. So, yeah, so you have this system that uh, all of the rules and regulations most of the time are well written. They don't need to be tweaked. It's they just need to be followed and resourced. So, I mean, I mean, that's that's how I see it. And, and I'm not trying to be too cynical about it, because, again, I think everybody is uh, has the best of intentions. Sam, uh, you know, I think it's about all the time we've got for this. You know, we, we could go on uh, before we go. I, I'm just going to mention. Um, you know, this discussion is, is centered on 
the biggest ships in the Navy. Um, the, you know, the, the carriers by far have larger crews than anybody else. But there, there are quite a number of other, other crews on smaller ships that are stuck in these situations that nobody's talking about specifically at the moment. I'm thinking about uh, four cruisers that have been in this nominal modernization program forever that haven't been to sea for six, seven years. Sometimes those crews have been run down to just a few dozen. Um, sometimes they're larger, but um, those ships have, have been nothing but industrial scenes. And from what I hear, not very pleasant at all, industrial scenes for, for years. Um, there are several submarines that are in the same situation that they haven't gone anywhere for years. They still have crews. People are still assigned. Those are nuclear ships. You can't leave them alone. Um, there's a lot of people in these situations that are, that are not getting the same attention that the GW is. And, you know, it'd be nice to see um, some attention given to those folks as well. Our guest again has been uh, Sam Legron, the editor of USNI News. Sam, it's always good to have you here. We really appreciate your insight. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me on. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. The Cavalry Ships Podcast is sponsored by HII. HII is the designer and operator of the U.S. Navy's live virtual constructive training enterprise, the largest LVC enterprise in the U.S. Department of Defense. HII, delivering hard stuff done right. Be sure to follow us at Cavus Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening. And bye-bye. Hey.